Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. The show covering all things health, wellness, culture, and more. The show for all of us who aren't old, we're better. Each week, we'll interview superstars, experts, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things, all related to this wonderful experience of getting better, not just older. Now, here's your host, the award-winning Paul Vogelzang. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and welcome to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. Today's show is part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living interview series, and we are diving into the melodious world of jazz with an enthralling discussion about one of its most iconic figures. The title of today's episode is Harmonizing History. Judith Tick unveils the untold story of Ella Fitzgerald Jazz's transformative voice. Our guest today, of course, is the distinguished music historian, Smithsonian Associate Judith Tick. Smithsonian Associate Judith Tick will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our show notes today for more details. Judith Tick's meticulous research breathes new life into Ella's story. Judith Tick has written the new book, Becoming Ella Fitzgerald, the jazz singer who transformed America's song, drawing on a treasure trove of digital records from influential black newspapers like the Baltimore Afro-American and the Chicago Defender. Judith Tick shares resources previously untapped by biographers, providing us with a fresh and profound understanding of Ella Fitzgerald's amazing journey. We'll hear about her iconic performances at venues like the Apollo Theater and the Savoy Ballroom, her collaborations with giants like Chick Webb and Nelson Riddle, and her complex relationship with record labels. But let's listen as Judith Tick reads from her new book, Becoming Ella Fitzgerald, about Chick Webb's orbit. Hello, Paul, and hello, everyone. We're starting out with my reading a section of the book, Becoming Ella Fitzgerald. It's from Chapter 3, and it's called Into Chick Webb's Orbit, and it takes place in 1935. I chose this section because I get to impersonate Ella Fitzgerald right away, and I begin with her quote, remembering what it was like to start out in 1935, and she remembers this in the mid-1980s. Here we go. Don't forget, when I started out, Chick Webb didn't want me. And John Truhart, him and Barta were the ones who took me to Chick. You know, he didn't want no girl singer. He didn't want to hear me. And that was funny. So Bardu sneaked me into his dressing room and said, listen to her. And Chick said, I don't want no girl singer. And Bardu said, man, just listen to her. That was how, about 50 years later, Ella Fitzgerald remembered her so-called audition. It was funny only in an ironic way and after the fact, considering the subsequent history of Chick and Ella, a team It is hard to know how much Ella Fitzgerald knew about the backstage drama surrounding her spontaneous audition. It's equally hard to reconcile the differences among various eyewitnesses whose stories sometimes collide. In the end, they all deliver the same message, a young girl who possessed extraordinary vocal charisma faced hurdles due to her painfully plain looks. 
When she sang, the other musicians in the room playing cards fell suddenly quiet. In 1991, the drummer Hal Austin, who knew Chick on the Harlem scene, said he didn't want her because she was ugly. He said she was too ugly. And another friend said, you damn fool, you'd better take her. Fitzgerald told the story from her point of view in October 1937 in an interview with Lillian Johnson, a columnist for the black newspaper that was highly prominent, not only in Baltimore, but but read all up and down the East Coast, the Baltimore Afro-American. This is Ella talking again. You know how it is. When someone's very busy, there are always so many things to demand his time. Well, I went back and kept going back every day that week. Finally, it was the last day, and the show slipped by until it was the last performance. Chick Webb was playing the next day at Yale University, and he was hurrying after the show to pack up and leave. And finally, Chick agreed to listen to one song. When I was through, the boys told Chick they liked my voice, and they took me to Yale. Lillian Johnson said, do you think there are many youngsters around who really have talent, but who don't get a chance to prove it? Ella answered, well, it's hard to say that there are many, but the public is fickle and likes beauty, and stage managers try to please the public. Many of these kids are good, but if they're not nice-looking... The odds are against them. So when a girl comes up and she looks like me, she just can't get a chance. And that, listeners, is why she was so grateful to Chig Webb for so many other reasons. But note, she was honest, diplomatic, and courageous in so few words. That, of course, is our guest today, author Judith Tick, reading from her new book, Becoming Ella Fitzgerald. We will learn more about this wonderful biography. It's an exploration of how Ella Fitzgerald, a groundbreaking black American woman singer and bandleader, navigated and transformed the worlds of jazz and pop. Judith Dick takes us through Ella's early days, her rise to stardom, and her unique ability to expand her audience across cultural divides. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates, Art of Living interview series, music historian and author, Judith Tick. Dr. Judith Tick, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's so nice pleasure to talk. to be here. It, well, thank you. It, it's a pleasure to talk to you. We're going to be talking about um, a fan favorite, a favorite of mine, someone who gets an awful lot of attention today, Who's someone who's who's who you've given a lot of attention to, and that's Ella Fitzgerald. We're going to talk about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation about your new book, Becoming Ella Fitzgerald. Dr. Tick, it's really so great to talk with you. I'm excited about this program. I really do love Ella Fitzgerald's music. We're going to get into a little bit of that. We'll play some of that music for our radio audience. But again, welcome. And let's just start right at the very start. Let's just jump in because I'm excited to talk to you. We've got a lot to talk about today. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates program. You're going to be hosting it soon. And you're going to be doing so via Zoom. We're all on Zoom these days. How will you use Zoom to tell Ella's story? Well, first of all, I want to say how special it is to be working with the Smithsonian because they own 
the Ella Fitzgerald archives that were deposited there after her death by the Ella Fitzgerald Charitable Foundation at her direction. So notwithstanding the COVID interruption, I did a lot of work there and I had proxy researchers to work for me there when I couldn't get to Washington, D.C. And they have an amazing archive and they are a collaborative of brilliant researchers. So now to be part of the Smithsonian Associates Program is a natural step for me. I want to say that this program is going to be filled with surprises, some from the archives and just some from the extraordinary internet explosion of information. There have been so many new recordings of Ella Fitzgerald, live at various venues and all over the world, in Europe in particular, fans who saw her on state TV or heard her on state radio programs have put their clips up online. So there is this phenomenal resource of new materials, and I feel grateful because I could not have written this book without them. That's so kind of you to to say that. I feel the same way about Smithsonian. They, they, their work is so fantastic. I, I don't think I was aware that the archive existed there for Ella Fitzgerald. So that, that I always get to learn something. So thank you for sharing that, and we're excited to have you at Smithsonian Associates. Absolutely. So I I also didn't know. I suppose a lot of the. The facts that you share in the book, which are so impressive about this woman, there were a lot of myths about her too. And and some of that just had to do with media bias. Some of it had to do with the timing of, uh, of our society. But you present mm-hmm. her as somebody who is um, – she's professionally a risk taker. She wants to do – she wants to challenge. Maybe tell us if – couple more of the myths that uh, are surrounding her, especially regarding her art, and um, and how you think those myths are, are, are debunked and, and put aside to get to know the, the real Ella Fitzgerald. Well, thank you for putting it in that elegant way, because that is a subtext of this book. Well, first of all, Ella Fitzgerald possessed not only tremendous virtuosity and a gift that was exceptional, bordering on genius in many ways, but she also had what is essential for inner vitality. She had curiosity. She always wanted to challenge herself. From the very beginning, she was willing to push the boundaries of what was given to her to sing. And she was competitive. A tisket, a tasket, <laughs> which is such a, an amazing achievement, started <laughs> out because she was miffed that Maxine Sullivan, this wonderful jazz pop singer, was getting so much attention by singing a swing version of Loch Lomond, Mm. the Scottish song. She Mm. got her picture in Life magazine, I think. And Ella had not yet been in Life magazine, and she got lots of play on radio. And Ella told one of her friends and even said, I feel like everyone forgot about me. Mm. 
Well, of course they hadn't, but that's the sign of a true professional who sees achievement and wants it for herself. So, but a tisket, a tasket is such a strange creature. <laughs> for one thing, it's a nursery rhyme, and and everybody knew it. You can hear you can hear field recordings <laughs> of children singing a tisket, a tasket. Oh, it's a game song. You yeah. go round the circle, and someone gets loses a seat. So to turn something so ephemeral into something so meaningful was almost like a magic trick. Uh-huh. And she did it because she was still, in a way, so very young, and her childhood experiences with games and playing with her friends on her block in her neighborhood were so real to her. Okay, I'm going to take a breath here. Where should I go from this? This is off. Um, do we oh. want to talk about how, we, how people resisted it? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, let's talk let's talk about how people resisted it. At mm-hmm. the time, mm-hmm. people said you're not you're not I don't want you to sing this. It was resi- Let's talk about the resistance she got right mm-hmm. then and there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At Decca when she went to record it, they almost didn't take it. Mm. In fact, Chick insisted. He's the one said a fellow jazzman. He's the one that picked a tisket, a tasket, and everybody said, I don't want to hear that garbage. Hmm. Can you imagine? No. Others reacted, I think, like if, uh, she was singing a mother, group, mother Goose, and they made Mother Goose into a witch. Hmm. So she was flying in on her broomstick. Because the whole milieu of jazz and theaters was that it was sexy, it was sensuous, it was an escape. And here's this young woman singing a nursery rhyme. What the hell are we running? A, ki- a kindergarten with nursery rhymes? You can't sing it in my theater. That's the owner of the Apollo. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to mention that that prejudice against it continued mm-hmm. right through Ken Burns's epic DVD series with a quote just dismissing it as this silly nursery rhyme mm-hmm. that no one should pay attention to. The only thing is it became one of the biggest hits of the era. Mm-hmm. It was translated into a Danish it had it was published in France and England and all around the world and even Hitler's Germany, which was a real tough moment for her in her career. The the German rendition of this, the Nazi occupation, a lot of these times impacted her, and she suffered as a result. Not only did it become one of the great hits of the era, but it got her into the movies. She got her first movie role with an Ab- Abbott and Costello feature film called Ride 'em Cowboy, which you can see these days. And her charisma is just so powerful. That's when America first learned what she looked like. And in the book, and I, I really, I, I want to recommend this to our audience because it, it, it just is wonderful. Your research is amazing. Congratulations on it again. Our guest is Dr. Judith. She has written the new book, Becoming Ella Fitzgerald. The photos in the book are just so wonderful, too, because you've talked about what she looks like. She even refers to a girl singer who looks like she does. I I have to tell you, I think one of my favorite photos in the book is of Ella in San Francisco, a a place that's... uh, um, important in, in my own personal history. I, I, was, I was born there, but she's appearing at the Masonic Auditorium, and it's in, uh, the photo is in her dressing room, and she just looks radiant. She just looks lovely. And 
and the rest of the photos are just amazing too. I wonder, do you have a favorite photo, and and how did you get all these wonderful pictures of Paul McCartney and Ella Fitzgerald? My goodness, <laughs> Gosh. I can pay tribute to my extended Ella Fitzgerald family, particularly Jim Blackman who is quoted in my book and who gave me that photo that he took backstage. Hmm. It, and it appeared, he told me how much he loved it. Mm-hmm. And I think she was appearing with Duke Ellington at the time. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if mm-hmm. I'm right about that one. But the photo with Frank Sinatra at the very end of this clip comes from Jim Blackman's private collection when he was at the last appearance that they made together. And other photos like that. The Paul McCartney I paid for from the great stock photo bank mm-hmm. of which will remain nameless. <laughs> and but other photos, <laughs> other photos like the great one with Ella and Eddie Murphy oh, and Michael, Michael Jackson. Jack- oh my gosh! I, I mean that, that is yeah. priceless. Yeah. So a shout out to the amazing. Scholar, mm-hmm. Ella Fitzgerald fan and <laughs> confidant of her, Jim Blackman, who, by the way, lives in San Francisco. Oh, yes. Yeah, you, you, you go on to say about her that she was this—I love this word that you use because I think it really does encapsulate her so well because we, we hear a lot about Ella today. Beyonce and Jay-Z and many other artists look to Ella for uh, influence, and so— you refer to her as transformational, an artist whose voice fused a black vocal aesthetic with mainstream repertoire. Tell us what you mean by that, and, and what was it about this fusion that just sparked this revolution, uh, this music re- revolution? That's quite a long phrase, so yes. thank you for reading it so slowly. <laughs> of course. I mean that she was able to take the standards, mainly from Broadway and Hollywood, that we understand and now call the Great American Songbook, Mm. or standards from Tin Pan Alley, that had not been really popularized by black artists, and give them a new modern life by bringing to them this black aesthetic of rhythm and a sense of time, and a sense of swing. Mm. She was able to make anything swing, and swing has Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. She gave them a new life. At the same time, she didn't treat them as vehicles for her personality. She wasn't giving your, she wasn't giving us her version of Begin the Beginning. She humbled herself in just the way a great artist knows how to do. She wanted to sing them the way she thought they should be sung without using them as projection screens for her own personality. Mm. She didn't really scat at length. She didn't transform the melodies that much in terms of their pitches or change the intervals. She gave them life her way, which came out of the black experience of swing that she had grown up with, with Chick Webb and afterwards. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, 
and Everything Smithsonian as part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. We're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are back with Smithsonian Associate author, and music historian, Judith Tick. Judith Tick has written the new book, Becoming Ella Fitzgerald. I just have to say, this is just wonderful, Judith. And, and I I do really, I love this idea of her path, you know, from the Savoy, the, yes. the swing era. Yeah, I, that really did influence her, and it, and it really stayed with her forever. Maybe elaborate on that a little bit, about the, some of those settings oh. that where she appeared, the Apollo Theater. Well, her son, Ray Brown Jr., did an amazing thing for me. He entrusted me with the Ella Fitzgerald scrapbook that his mother began when she just started in the business. I still have it in trust. Hmm. So, can you imagine getting this document of many pages hmm. with her handwriting on top of the clippings that she clipped out from all the vaudeville acts that she saw? With autographs that she cultivate, she that she, oh God, with autographs that she requested from famous artists like Cab Calloway, for example. Gosh, she was... that she appeared with somebody like Moms mm. Mabley, who yeah. was impersonating everybody. If you want to understand why Ella impersonates Louis Armstrong so brilliantly, it's because that was a staple of black vaudeville in the 1930s mm. and 40s and mm. probably onward. Mm -hmm. Impersonation was a compliment. And she learned this very sweeping way of approaching entertainment that took everything in. It meant that she was not a snob. Let's put it that way. Mm. She didn't look down. She didn't look up. She just looked at what she was singing and went for its truth. So nice. That's not bad. No, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. That is definitely not bad. She really, she defied an awful lot of conventions, especially during yes. at, at this time. Yeah. So maybe talk about that because she okay she faced some obstacles, you know. But then she decided, I'm going to be a band leader, and women weren't doing that then. Okay, let's talk a little bit about race and gender in a way okay. that the on this is okay. So one of the one of the powerful themes in Ella Fitzgerald's life is, or can be said, one of the powerful themes in Ella Fitzgerald's life can be summed up through the phrase Jim Crow, which we all understand as racism, and also a lesser known phrase called Jane Crow, which meant mm -hmm. sexism and misogyny and prejudice against women. Now, in every aspect of American life, there were these obstacles that faced African Americans, so she hardly suffered alone, but she managed not to let it define her. It was always keeping on, up we go, uplift, certainly not dwelling on hardship, especially not to the public who needed figures of hope. Mm -hmm. 
she was also able to respect her. Oh, I mean, whoa, whoa, whoa. The other thing that I want to stress about elephant let's start again. I'm having I'm getting a little silly. The other thing about Ella Fitzgerald that I want to stress is her courage in respecting her talent. Mm-hmm. And by this I mean she was willing to learn bop, bebop, and learn to completely change her style because she was so curious and impressed by the brilliance of Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker, who were transforming jazz. She wasn't going to be left behind. And against the wishes of her manager, Mo Gale, and to the surprise of her DECA A&R artist, Milt Gabler, she decided to create her own kind of vocal jamming where she scattered classics like Lady Be Good and How High the Moon into what I call vocal jams, Mm. these long explorations. They're almost like etudes Mm. where she explores her own curiosity and reaches out to the instrumentalists in her world by quoting their phrases and then reassures herself by quoting her her own work. She's quite an interpolator of familiar quotations to be humorous or very sophisticated references that only other musicians and connoisseurs might get. But she succeeded in fusing Bop with her own innate ability to soften it and fuse it with a pop style that educated but did not overwhelm listeners. Mm-hmm. Oh, we have to talk about the Cole Porter songbooks. Right. Let's when, talk a when, little bit about the Cole Porter songbooks. Every time we say goodbye, maybe. Um... Let's talk a little bit about what I call the Cole Porter experiment. Mm-hmm. Ella's achievement with the Ella Fitzgerald sings the Cole Porter songbook, which came out in 1956, was a two LP set. And it was filled with information about Ella Fitzgerald, and it was considered a risk. As she herself said, it was a turning point in her career. Quote, in the 50s, I started singing with a different kind of style, picking out songwriters and singing their songs. Cole Porter was the first. It was like beginning all over again. People who never heard me suddenly heard songs which surprised them because they didn't think I could sing them. People always figure you can only do one thing. It was like another education. Now, she got there because of her brilliant manager, Norman Granz, who took over her career around 1956 and enabled her to record on a label, Verve, which he just created for her and which still exists doing wonderful Ella Fitzgerald releases to this day, he knew she could do it. He knew she could sing mainstream classic pop. She didn't have to turn it into Lady Be Good, which, by the way, is a Gershwin tune. She could sing it straight and bring a new sensibility to it. And the people at Decca weren't interested. They said she couldn't do it, just like the regular public. And one critic said, Whatever praiseworthy thing one may say about Miss Fitzgerald, intelligence is certainly the one quality to which her voice could never lay claim. I mean, that is so insulting and racist Mm -hmm. and sexist also, Mm -hmm. as if somehow this black woman lacked the emotional intelligence to sing Cole Porter. 
just because he had sophisticated lyrics, they didn't understand the warmth that she brought to the music itself because he had multiple personalities in his songs. He wasn't just cynical. He wasn't just sexually on filled with double entendre. He had a big heart and it came out in his romantic harmonies and his melodies and the blues tinges to some of his work and his grief mm. over his love life and his own condition as a, a disabled person, and she got that. Well, I wonder, given your research, Dr. Tick, into Ella Fitzgerald's uh, wide um, musical styles, her willingness to experiment, to scat, to do a little bit of, of bebop and swing, and and then to, she, she often would memorialize um, Moms Mabley and Louis Satchmo and, and others. What's her legacy today, especially with some of the young, the younger acts coming up? Do you think she's really um, just made her mark? Well, I think there are several reasons. First of all, we have to acknowledge the beauty of her voice mm-hmm. that was a century, a gift to the century. And that standard of clarity in her diction is another gift. Mm. I think it's her eclectic versatility. It's her willingness to experiment and not turn her back on pop music of however, wherever it goes and wherever it takes us. And one of the last scenes is that I treasure is a video of Ella standing in front of the audience at an NAACP award dinner saying, I can rap. I'm not going to be left behind. (laughs) And look how proud I am of the young ones. Mm. She had a sense of nurturing the generations. And so when singers return to her, they feel freedom and they feel roots. So nice to talk to you. I, uh, you said it earlier, I, I could talk to you for a long time. This is such a great subject. Ella Fitzgerald's music, her songbook, her talent, her improvisation, everything that she is about, I, uh, I could the really curiosity. Learn. Mm-hmm. So nice to talk with you again. Congratulations on the book, oh, Dr. Tick, you. Becoming Ella Fitzgerald. Dr. Tick will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. We'll have links in our notes today so that you can go directly to the page where information will um, be available on Dr. Tick's upcoming presentation, as well as more information about the book and Dr. Tick and her work. But Dr. Judith Tick, thanks so much for your time. Again, congrats on this fantastic book. What a joy it's been to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure of mine to do this. Thank you. My thanks to Smithsonian Associate author Judith Tick. Judith Tick has written the new book, Becoming Ella Fitzgerald, the jazz singer who transformed America's song. Judith Tick will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our website for more details. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well and be safe, and let's talk about better, the not-old better show. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next week. Thanks for joining us this week on the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. 
Join us again next time as we deep dive into some of the most fascinating real-life stories from across the world, all focused on this wonderful experience of getting better, not just older. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on community radio.